Hello, and you are listening to Eco Justice Radio on KPFK Los Angeles and KPFT Houston, a project of SoCal 350 Climate Action. Our show presents environmental and climate stories from a social justice frame, featuring voices not necessarily heard on mainstream media. Eco Justice Radio acknowledges that we record the show on the traditional territory of the Tongva and all of their relatives. Welcome, I am Jessica Aldridge. On today's show, The Truth About Compostable Packaging, I will be interviewing Erin Levine, Resource Recovery Manager at World Centric. Erin has been involved with resource recovery for 18 years and in the last decade has focused specifically on the sales and marketing of finished compost. She has supported commercial compost facilities throughout the West Coast and has worked closely with end users of compost, particularly the agricultural industry. Erin is a certified composting professional through the U.S. Composting Council and a certified compost programs manager through the Solid Waste Authority of North America. Are you confused about compostable packaging? Like, is it truly compostable? Or are we just being bamboozled by marketing? Are there environmental concerns that haven't been considered? And how can compostable packaging assist in reducing our dependence on fossil fuels? What about reusables? But first, let's talk about organics waste, which includes yard waste, plant trimmings, food scraps, and food soil paper. At approximately 40%, organic matter is the largest contributor of material in the landfill. Wasted food makes up around 20%. When this material starts to slowly decompose, it creates the third largest source of human-related methane emissions in the United States, according to the EPA. Methane is a climate super pollutant up to 84 times more potent than carbon dioxide. Diverting wasted organics away from the landfills and into systems like compost can not only reduce methane emissions, it supports healthier soils, stronger plants, and cleaner air through carbon sequestration. Composting is a climate-oriented solution that we need and can enact immediately. That being said, Businesses and public participation in accurately separating organics waste so that it can be composted is key to collecting and processing this material, especially wasted food. So by using compostable foodware, can we divert more food from the landfill, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and lessen the consumption of single-use plastics? Well, let's find out. Thank you for tuning in to Eco Justice Radio and our show, The Truth About Compostable Packaging. I am your host, Jessica Aldridge, and it is my honor to welcome our guest, Aaron Levine, Resource Recovery Manager at World Centric. Welcome to Eco Justice Radio. Thank you. Very happy to be here. I am excited that you're here. This is a topic that I love talking about. <laughs> And there's so much confusion. Uh, for 10 years, you, Erin, you have been dedicated to compost, to creating healthy soils, to diverting organics away from the landfills and, and back into nature. Now you work for this company that creates compostable ware. People are so incredibly confused on what type of packaging is truly compostable, whether it can be composted in the backyard or if it needs what's called a high heat compost facility. <clears throat> and today, 
I want us to break down that confusion and understand the solutions better. I think we should start first by defining some of those terms so we're all on the same page. What is the definition of compostable versus biodegradable packaging? Sure. You said, let's break it down. So let's break it down. <laughs> Love the pun there. <laughs> so when we talk about things that will break down or degrade, that's literally everything. Everything will degrade. This computer will degrade, but it will take thousands of years. So when someone says degrade, it doesn't mean as much, but to say biodegrade, that means something. And it means that it will degrade with the assistance of living organisms like bacteria, fungi, and that it will turn into CO2, biomass, water, and inorganic compounds. That's the definition of biodegradability. But to be compostable means that something will biodegrade, but that it will biodegrade within a specific time frame and it will be beneficial for plants to uptake. So big difference there. And usually it also means that it with the along with the assistance of humans. So it takes humans to help it along. And in the US, when you have a package and you claim certified compostable, that means that it undergoes testing that is put forth by the American Society for Testing and Methods known as ASTM International. And that it proves that it will disintegrate. So that means that that refers to physically falling apart in 84 days and that it will fully biodegrade in 180 days. So that means that it will convert from carbon to carbon dioxide. And they will prove that in lab and with testing. And that it also will leave no visible, distinguishable or toxic residue. So it has to meet those things for a compost product manufacturer to claim that. And there are different types of what would be considered compostable packaging in this world. There's something that is more considered 100% fiber-based material, and that is just fiber. It does not have a coating or a liner or filler that would be made out of petroleum plastic, oil-based plastic, plant plastic, or what is called bioplastic, or wax. Then there's this packaging that is made from 100% plants, but it looks like plastic. That's what's referred to as bioplastic. Sometimes the fiber material can, it could be like a cup and it have this bioplastic liner on the inside of it. So it's 100% fiber based, but then it's got this small bioplastic coating. Can you explain what a bioplastic is and why they are not the same as 100% fiber based material? Yes, absolutely. So bioplastic. So bioplastic refers to a bio-based, so it's plant-derived polymer, and that's a large molecule, and you can, can think of that like just like the building block. The most widely recognized bioplastic is polylactic acid, or it's known as PLA, and that's made from starchy plants like corn and cassava, sugar beets, and basically the, the plant sugars are, are chemically modified. And then they are what's called polymerized. So that means that you hook up these molecules and you give it properties that resemble plastic. So then they're referred to as a bioplastic. Um, there's other bioplastics that exist. A lot of people might know PHA or uh, BioPBS or TPS. So those are the most common bioplastics that are manufactured and used readily. They're clear. They do look and feel like plastic. So it is quite confusing because they are not petroleum derived, plant derived, but 
they act like plastic. So alternatively, we have fiber materials. So fiber materials are derived from cellulose, and that's a naturally occurring biopolymer, and it has no chemical modification. So big difference there with bioplastics and fibers. And just most plants have cellulose as part of their plant wall. And so those fibers are taken and they're blended to create a pulp and it's converted with pressure and heat and molded into fiber products. And that's often how we get molded fiber, like takeout containers or now we're coming out with utensils and new items that are purely 100% fiber based. They also, we have, like you mentioned, there's fiber that's lined with bioplastics. So you can have two substrates, like two different materials to make one product. And that's where it gets a little confusing because you either need a binder to prevent oil and grease from leaking. And that can be with a coating of bioplastics. So like, for example, a hot coffee cup would have a PLA item, but that's not derived again from petroleum. And so it acts like a coating. And so people can have hot beverages or in a soup bowl, they cannot, they can use that functionally. It'll, it'll perform without actually leaking. And so that's uh, why a lot of the manufacturers do that. And we're going to get into later about, you know, what's going to happen with the bioplastics. If some places, you know, why some places are able to take them and compost them and some places are not able to take them. And so why some places only take hundred percent fiber-based. And even if it has that little bioplastic liner, they don't take but then others do. And so we'll get into explaining that. I'm sure that there are a lot of people listening that want to know why the cup may or may not be acceptable. Before we get into that, I want to talk about a piece of legislation that was started in the state of California. It's Senate Bill 567, and it made it so the word biodegradable. So we talked about the definition of biodegradable, and it made it so that word biodegradable cannot be used on a product to market the product if that product looks like plastic, no matter if it's made from plants or not. The marketing on that product cannot say biodegradable. Why is that? Well, it is, it's illegal. It's illegal in California, Maryland, and Washington, in fact. So all three states have have passed that, that the term biodegradable in marketing claims relating to any plastic products is prohibited. And that is because it's often described for an item that doesn't meet the ASTM standards. So the testing standards I described to you to meet disintegration and full biodegradation in a certain time frame to make it compostable. And it's just often viewed as a contaminant if it doesn't have the appropriate composting claim. This law actually, so it requires scientific evidence for the environmental claim. That's that. But even if it's a bioplastic and it is certified compostable in a high heat facility, it still can't say, it can say compostable, but it can't say biodegradable. Correct. You you spoke to the parameters that need to be in place, the ASTM, you know, that to be certified compostable, certain aspects have to be in place. What, again, are those parameters? And I know that the Federal Trade Commission sets standards for the green guidelines. So what are some of those reliable compostable certifications or verification groups that exist? What do they ensure? How do they differ? What are they setting up? Yeah. Okay. So to claim compostable, uh, so a marketer needs to have competent and reliable scientific evidence showing that all the materials will break down in a compost pile in a safe and timely manner. And then also for the appropriate compost system. So for home or for industrial, like you mentioned, 
And the FTC does have these green guidelines for compostable, and they want to make it clear that these items are appropriate for commercial composting, which do achieve a high heat. So like, for example, on our products, we write commercially compostable, but facilities may not exist in your area. And that's part of the FTC guide is that you have to make sure people understand these products are not suitable for a home compost environment. They are best suited for a commercial compost facility, and that may not be established in your area, unfortunately, but that's part of the the guidelines. So I mentioned the heat's a a critical piece. So in a commercial compost facility, you you achieve these thermophilic temperatures. So that means that the material has to meet a minimum of 131 degrees, stay that way for at least three consecutive days to kill off pathogens. And that in that time, the, the facilitators monitor the temperature. They're also incorporating oxygen. They have a, a very uh, strict protocol for ma- ensuring that that heat, that temperature is met, that the products are breaking down. Unlike a home composting system, which is often just in a person's backyard and a variety of systems like your your tumbler or your worm bin or just an open pile that you're turning with a pitchfork. It's so highly variable and most people aren't sitting there taking temperatures throughout the active phase of composting. It's so hard to ensure that it's getting the high heat that it really needs to aid in the breakdown. Yeah. And, and, and like we'll discuss later, not even if it is a high heat compost facility, like you mentioned, Erin, not all high heat compost facilities can take all types of compostables. And what, what do those different compostable certifications or verification groups set up? So there's different ones. There's mm-hmm. BPI, there's CMA, there's European standards. Like, yeah. can you, can you explain some of those? Yeah, sure. So to meet those standards that I described with ASTM, I'll just super quickly reiterate what that means. It means disintegrate biodegrade, no ecotoxicity, and then no heavy metals. So there are these verification nonprofit groups that not all of them are nonprofits. BPI is, let me just start to say that first, but it's a third party that would verify that the testing is occurring. So for BPI specifically, that stands for Biodegradable Products Institute. They look at the lab reports for ASTM, which is at an accredited lab and I'm in frequent communication with them about how our products perform. But so BPI has three qualifications to have your product BPI certified, which is that has to pass one of the ASTM standards. It has to be a product that's come in contact with food. So they don't certify other products like a phone case or something like that. People say compostable. No, it has to be food contact. And then it has to, you have to use the BPI mark. So the physical logo on the product. So it's an easily identifiable by consumers and composters. And then finally, that they limit the fluorinated chemicals that are added to 100 parts per million. So that means that we, a manufacturing did not intentionally add a fluorinated chemical. Often these are referred to as PFAS, P-F-A-S, which is per and polyfluorinated alkaline substance. And then BPI also verifies the safety data sheets on all the ingredients that you add, that a manufacturer puts in their product. There are other agencies that exist. So Dinserco and Tuve in Austria, which are European, but they do the same thing. They verify the ASTM standards. And Tuve, actually pretty interesting. They also have certifications for home, soil, water, and marine 
degradability. So pretty interesting. Tuve does have those certain called tube. T U V tube. 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 Uh, <laughs> yeah, but they do the same type of verification. And then lastly, in the U.S., there's CMA. So that's the Compost Manufacturers Alliance. They do field verification for disintegration, and they do this at a variety of different compost systems, commercial compost systems. So they will take products, they test them in the field using a mesh bag test method, and they put them in systems like area static piles or windrows. They'll see how they perform and then do a report back and report real life breakdown condition. They also verify ASTM results, but they're really looking for disintegration. And a compostable material could have any of these certifications on them. Yeah. And we're, this is specifically to food service wear. Food service wear. Yeah. Yes. Just because there's other items that people claim as compostable, but these agencies of who I listed the certification bodies don't deal with the other items. So, so if, if a business or a person is looking at buying something that really upholds the ASTM standards for compostability, then they would look at that product and say, not rely on the website saying our stuff biodegrades because you see this all the time. You'd be on social media and they're like, our product's so great. It's this t-shirt, it's this, this, or it's the it's for food packaging, but still it's this thing. Right. It's gonna compost because it's made out of whatever plant material, but there's no certification that's attached to it. So if people are looking for a certification, they need to look for so BPI, BPI, CMA, and then TUV is the other most common, TUV. TUV. Okay. Well, everyone stay tuned. We're going to come right back. I want to ask you, Erin, is marine degradability certification actually a thing? You know, will bioplastics actually break down if they get into the ocean? And then also, you know, why do some of these compost facilities, these high heat compost facilities not accept certain type of compostables, especially the bioplastics? So we'll be right back and we'll get right into that. Hey listeners, quick break here. We hope that you're enjoying Eco Justice Radio. We air every Monday at 9 a.m. on KPFT Houston and Wednesday at 3 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles. Stay connected by subscribing to Eco Justice Radio on all major podcast apps and visit our website, ecojusticeradio.org, to check out previous shows and guests and get connected with us on social media. For an extended version of this interview, as well as other benefits, we encourage you to become a member of our Patreon. Today, you are listening to The Truth About Compostable Packaging with host Jessica Aldridge and guest Aaron Levine, Resource Recovery Manager at World Centric. Welcome back. We're talking about are things truly compostable? What does compostable mean? And I think many people have seen this video of a turtle with a plastic straw in its nose. And in response, businesses and people, you know, had this visceral reaction. They want to get the plastic straws and other single-use plastic foodware out of the ocean. They don't want this in the environment. And so they're thinking, oh, I should replace this with maybe a compostable item, maybe this bioplastic compostable item that we've been talking about. And however, if a product that is bioplastic were to enter the ocean or any other waterways, would it actually break down in the water or would it still pose a risk to the environment? Yeah, it's a great question. And I thought I would just start by saying we, as a company, voluntarily discontinued making straws, even bioplastic straws, 
a few years ago. And now we're only producing craft paper straws just as a response because straws are so, in particular, such a challenging item and people should refuse them anyways. But just thought I'd like to point that out because it's important. And we Uh, as in world-centric, right? We as in world-centric have discontinued (laughs) making bioplastic straws. So bioplastics though. So I think I stated earlier that they have, they've been chemically modified. And because of that, they may degrade, but it will take a long time. And as far as environmental, it's hard to say like what the actual time frame would be, but more than likely they will turn into fragments, microplastics, similar to petroleum-based plastics. And it's a, it's a problem. It's a problem. We don't want to see them getting as a source of pollution. It's a, it's, it's, it's bad all the way around. A big difference though, I want to just point out from an environmental, from a toxicity standpoint, often you'd say the microplastics made from derived from petroleum would have things like phthalates or BPA, like really like toxic chemicals that would leach, that would be of more concern than bioplastics pose. Still not a great solution, still not perfect and not desirable at all for entering a marine environment to degrade. And we as a company, we as in world-centric and the industry generally is trending away from bioplastics because this is a big issue and it is a, a serious one. And I feel like one of the reasons I came to work for one of the leaders in the space was to influence the manufacturer to just shift towards all cellulistic material, material that we know will degrade, that will naturally degrade, that's not chemically modified, that is just truly a something that will break down. And lots of studies have shown paper or fiber items will take two to four months, won't pose any harm to wildlife. There's just so many benefits to switching to that fibrous material much, much better. So that's, that's that. And then you had said earlier to me off of this conversation, but that it, it, there's an element of this concept of switching from this type of plastic to this, you know, petroplastic to a bioplastic almost promotes more pollution in a sense. It does. I mean, reusables are best option when they're feasible. I mean, it's not a perfect solution, but in times when it's not feasible, Is it the better option? Sure. And if we're not extracting fossil fuels and and doing all of this damaging effects to our environment and our health from petroleum plastics, so like for like, yes, it's better. Is it perfect? No. Does it need, has a big room for improvement? Absolutely. And that, in my mind, is working more towards that, the fibrous cellulistic material. And even if a, a bioplastic packaging is certified compostable, well, I, I kept mentioning this at the top of the show, even if it's certified compostable, why do many compost facilities not accept bioplastics for processing, but they will accept, say, the 100% fiberware, fibrous, cellulose, foodware packaging? It's challenging. So there are about, let's say, 4,000 or so right now permitted commercial compost facilities in the United States. There's only, there's very few, most of them just take green waste. Very few of those actually accept food scraps and even fewer accept compostable packaging. And that is because bioplastics are categorized within the National Organic Program as synthetic. And they are a prohibited part of the waste stream, part of the organics stream, because when a composter goes to certify their product as approved for organic use, so some would just say 
certified organic compost, the finished product. If you include bioplastics, you are not allowed to list your product with OMRI. So that's the Organic Material Review Institute. So it is a not allowed as a part of the feedstock, even if it comes with food, which is food is is desirable and it's it's a vessel for getting more food in. A lot of people have that argument that it will help with waste diversion, um, in particular with food scraps. But because of the National Organic Program prohibiting it and recognizing it as synthetic, it is not allowed. And that's why food soiled paper alternatively is permitted. And so the fibrous material that doesn't have coating is accepted. Some of these compost facilities too, and I know we can't get into the nitty gritty of the differences between an aerobic facility and a covered static pile where they're Mm -hmm. pumping in the oxygen and, but they're, they're creating these compost facilities to get through this material, to Mm -hmm. degrade this material, food scraps, green waste, food soil paper as quick as possible, especially in states where they have passed legislation where food scraps are now, you legally have to collect them many times out of your organics container that a resident may have available to them curbside or a business might have available to them curbside. And so they have to move this material, seeing that organics in the land is the largest material in the landfill. It's being moved from the landfill now to this facility. And they're saying, you have to process this. And so a lot of these facilities are going to systems that process on a shorter time span. So instead of doing what these, like these big wind rows of these long rows of compost, they're now going to the, what's called a covered aerated static pile or something similar. Would you mind maybe speaking to that a little bit? Because if it's not, if, if an item, even if it can break down the high heat compost facility, maybe they don't sell their compost to farms that sell organic food. Maybe the degradation rate is just too short. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so back to the ASTM timeline, the standards for classifying a product as compostable, it says that it has to disintegrate. So fall apart in 84 days. That's still pretty quick. That's only 12 weeks. And then, but the full biodegradation, the compostability claim is 180 days. So yes, a lot of the commercial composters turn product in like eight to 10 weeks sometimes during the height of the season when they really need material. They're definitely cranking it out. They need the space for incoming material. They the farmers want it during a certain time frame. There's just there's so many factors involved with turning over that material that sometimes a product will not have the full length it needs to break down. And so it the end result would be that it would be screened out and sent with what's called over. So anything that falls below a certain screen size is put up for sale. Anything that's above it, which the industry calls overs, would either go back into the system or sometimes it's just disposed of. And so then composters view it as a contaminant if it results in the final end over product. So it's not incredibly desirable for the time frame. However, the fiber material, if it doesn't fully break down, I've never heard a farmer tell me, oh, I don't want this, you know, brown looking, you know, fibrous woody <laughs> material in my compost. Oh no, because it's it adds really beneficial carbon. Like we need the carbon from that source. And then nitrogen, which the, the food provides, it's a great way to get both that good balance and the nutrient balance the compost pile needs. So it's actually... I've never heard a complaint about it selling compost for the last 10 years of my life. Only ever heard about microplastics and glass as the biggest sources of contaminants. So 
if this inorganic, that, that bioplastics are considered inorganic material were to be changed, you know, sometimes some state level, federal level as well. Are there certain type of bioplastics that you feel would be able to degrade and go through that whole entire breakdown process in a high heat compost facility? You know, some may not like really thick material like utensils, but are there ones that are like maybe the liner on a packaging that you feel could could break down? And do you see any negative impact on the compost or soil if that this compost would be used on? Yeah, this is, these are great questions. So the timely manner, safe and timely manner is back to the FTC guidelines. That's part of the definition for compostability. And so things that are thinner, like flimsy bags, for example, those typically break down and we don't see those. It's just, they're so, uh, you know, they, they basically break down once you have all your food scraps. And I mean, we feel sweat and they just fall apart. Exactly. So the thicker items, like let's say the rings around the top of the cups, or like you mentioned, the cutlery, it could take longer. And that's, that's a problem. They, the CMA though, who does the field tests often always pass our PLA bioplastic material in the time frame that they desire or that a commercial compost desires. So we get passing tests from them, but there has been a petition recently to the NOP, which is again, the national organic program to change the regulations around accepting the bioplastics, given that there's overwhelming evidence that bioplastics do break down. I mean, according to the lab tests, again, to the field tests, and that they don't leave any ecotoxicity. It's very clear that there's no residual harm to compost. Um, But that could take years. And our uh, previous administration didn't fund the EPA as well. And now it's back and it's gaining some momentum, but an, an item like that, a petition to change it, it, it's lengthy and probably won't see it for at least five to 10 years. If, if it does, if they do decide to change the regulations and it's, you know, it's not, it's not perfect, but I'm hoping that the cellulose and, and we know that that's um, can break down as long as it doesn't have any of the additives like the forever chemicals that I referred to that we do test for because that could be potentially migrate into soil if it's broken down in the compost it could it it could persist in the fluorinated chemicals that are used so the PFAS the PFAS it's the the test they use to determine it is just for total fluorine and again if it's over 100 parts per million that's intentionally added if it's under 100 parts per million which Almost everyone, I haven't seen any test that doesn't have some detectable level of PFAS because it just exists in our water and in, in our air our air and our, uh, already in the soil. It, it's everywhere. It's basically unavoidable. And that, that's just the threshold for the maximum amount. And, you know, a lot of the fiber materials, if they don't have a coating like PFAS, which will prevent oil and grease from leaking, it's not very functional. And that's a big problem because someone would, for example, receive a hamburger in a fiber box that had no lamination and no coating inside of the slurry or when it was made, it it wouldn't be very functional. So it's it's a really big challenge right now, just in the industry as a whole, to 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 find a way to 
safely and functionally produce a product that composters want to accept, that people want to use, you know, and the other big thing is that people buy with their eyes. So PLA is very desirable to a lot of people because they can see through the container, they can see through the cups. And even at like events where they serve alcohol, they have to have clear cups because they want to see what's in there, what's in the cup. And so there's a lot of challenges when we actually talk about removing PLA from the whole entire system. The bioplastic. The yeah. bioplastics, yeah, because it's because there are some advantages to having what we've known and been so familiar with for years. And just just from an aesthetic standpoint, it's it's just really hard. It's hard. And this grease barrier that you're talking about, because either it's going to be a bioplastic barrier or it's going to be this other barrier that has had PFAS in it mm-hmm. and which is a forever chemical. Right. And the the industry as a whole has to sort of move, right? Find that solution to, to a new grease barrier that isn't bioplastic so that these compost facilities can accept it at many of them and that it doesn't have PFAS in it. So there's a few things. So World Centric had developed last year, we rolled out a new solution. We call in, we're calling it Leaf Plus. And it's a coating and it does provide that oil and grease barrier. So it can be applied after the molded fiber is formed and just coated, or it can go straight into the slurry before it's formed. So it can do, it can do either, but the summary there is it's not PLA hundred percent plant based and that, that we're going to be, you know, rolling it out, applying it to all the fiber. And we think it's a proprietary solution that I can't, completely unveil, but we have a lot of confidence in its performance because we went and got a test on toxicology for it to make sure it's not a regrettable replacement because a lot of the other manufacturers are looking to other type of chemicals to step in for PFAS. So the fluorine is not accepted, but what else can work? People are looking at all types of options, but I feel pretty confident the NSF. The NSF, so the National Science Foundation, they have an outside agency that performs toxicology. So they're looking for a chemical hazardous assessment, which our solution passed. And I feel pretty good about that. This can be a solution. Erin, one of the things we haven't talked about is where is all this stuff coming from? So for making it out of plants, what plants are being sourced to create both the 100% fiberware packaging as well as that bioplastic packaging? The most common derivative for the molded fiber is a substance called bagasse. And bagasse is the pulpy residue that's left over after sugar is extracted from the sugar cane. So we, that Typically, that's all that material would have been incinerated or sometimes landfilled, but we're taking it and that that becomes our molded fiber. That's 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 the source. The next most common item is wheat straw. So wheat straw is actually made from the sheath um, or the outer layer that naturally falls off of the wheat straw. So we gather that it's it aids in forming the molded fiber, usually that is in combination with either the bagasse or bamboo, which bamboo is another huge source. Bamboo is an amazing plant and it's actually 
part of the grass family. It's rapidly renewable. It becomes a full maturity in like three to five years. And again, the sheath or the outer layer of the bamboo is what naturally falls off the plant. That's what that's what's collected, cleaned and boiled and made into a molded fiber item. So those are the three most common plants used when making fibrous. So trees are not a source for us. Usually we use recycled paper to do like our napkins, for example, but we try not to use anything grown just for the product. We try to use material that's considered an agricultural byproduct. It would otherwise have gone to waste. So we're really looking for how you can reduce your carbon footprint in sourcing material. So raw material extraction is incredibly important when considering the full life cycle of compostables. So it is taken into consideration. Do you want me to talk about bioplastics just briefly? Yeah, let's talk about bioplastics after the break. Uh, We'll bring the conversation back, talk about where the material is for bioplastics. And then also, I want to know, you know, if we're taking this from agricultural crop and if it's agricultural crop across the world, are there environmental and social justice implications? So we'll be right back. Hey, listeners, quick break here. We hope that you're enjoying Eco Justice Radio. We air every Monday at 9 a.m. on KPFT Houston and Wednesday at 3 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles. Stay connected by subscribing to Eco Justice Radio on all major podcast apps and visit our website, ecojusticeradio.org, to check out previous shows and guests and get connected with us on social media. For an extended version of this interview, as well as other benefits, we encourage you to become a member of our Patreon. Today, you are listening to The Truth About Compostable Packaging with host Jessica Aldridge and guest Aaron Levine, Resource Recovery Manager at World Centric. Aaron, we just talked about the feedstock of where the material is coming from to make 100% fiber-based compostable foodware. What about the bioplastic foodware? What, what is the feedstock? What are the resources for that? Mm-hmm. So for the bioplastic, that's most common, which is again, PLA, so polylactic acid, the it's derived mainly from very uh, starchy plants. So plants that are really high in sugar. So corn, cassava, sugar beets, three most common corn being probably number one for the U.S. and basically they ferment the sugars to make this product. So they're looking for just starchy material that they can use. Erin, how do we confirm that the feedstock being used is not connected to projects that are causing environmental harm or social justice issues? Are there agricultural crop sources or byproducts that are more environmentally friendly than others? So the the sources for the fiber are all agricultural byproducts. They are grown by small farmers and they're grown within a hundred miles of the facilities in which they're making the final product. They have certified fair labor wages. They're not just grown for us. They are using like, for example, that bagasse, the, the, the sugar is extracted. So using the sugar, it's just the leftover product. So it is more desirable than just be a virgin material that's being grown just to use one time. We also source and strongly support the forest 
Stewardship Council, FSC, which is, uh, they verify that all of the forest and items that we source from are sustainably managed. So they don't allow clear cutting or chemicals to be grown or used for in the growing. So that's for our wood paper, bamboo paper. It's, it's all sourced from FF, FSC certified. And they manage the whole supply chain as well. So it's a very reliable and um, thorough organization. And finally, I'll just say that World Centric gives 25% of our profits to environmental and social justice nonprofits. So we are very, very dedicated to balancing our carbon footprint. Um, we don't have verified carbon offsets, but we rather we give to environmental and social justice issues throughout the world. I want to talk about greenwashing. Okay. Uh, when it comes to compostable packaging and, you know, talking about that, that confusion element of can this actually be compostable, but they told me it will. And, you know, this word greenwashing uh, mm. that it says it's supposed green, it's environmentally friendly, right? But it's, it's, it's telling you one thing, but maybe it's meaning the other. So this terminal, this term greenwashing, let's call out some of those confusing elements that exist with food packaging, what are some of the marketing terms that we should look out for with compostable packaging? Yeah, they can be false. They could be misleading, but they're marketing terms for sure. So I, in my mind, I, when I hear organic, I think that's incredibly overused and is not uh, very well tracked. Um, natural what is that? I mean, what is that? How did that come about? I'm natural. <laughs> Good for you. Um, biodegradable, again, that term does not mean compostable, as we've learned. It's just, it's, it's, it's a way to that people can greenwash because if someone sees it, they're like, oh yeah, this will break down. This will, this will do its job. Um, and there's verification agencies that exist for this exact reason. Uh, some others like plant-based, bio-based. Um, yeah, it's just crazy because they can slap it on a piece of material and then people can be confused by it. Now, the FTC, what we uh, mentioned before, the Federal Trade Commission, has some regulation on what can and cannot be said per their green guidelines. Another one is oxo-degradable, photo-degradable on compostable wear. And the state of California, under the piece of legislation that we had mentioned previously, you're not allowed to put oxo-degradable or photo-degradable on any product that looks like plastic, whether it's made out of plants or made out of petroleum. You're not allowed to use those words. Another one I want to bring up is uh, major beverage and condiment companies are announcing the creation of a, quote, plant-based bottle, but the content is what's called bio-derived plastic. What does bio-derived plastic mean, and is this actually compostable? Well, as I understand it, polypropylene and polyethylene can both be sourced from plants as well. So technically, they can claim that, um, but it's just... It's a it's a technicality because, for example, like if one percent or less has a poly derivative that is derived from petroleum, they can still use the word biodrive because there's there. It's a technicality. They can just um, they can claim it, so they do, and that that exists. <laughs> and they're producing like 
okay, yeah, 1% of the bottle maybe has got plastic. And so it's, they can say it's plastic free, right? But now they're producing millions of these bottles and people are thinking that this bottle is going to decompose and compost if it gets out into the environment. Yep. That's crazy. Yep. And it's, it's not, it's not going to decompose when it gets out into the environment. Um, Not in full, I guess. I I mean, it, Theoretically could, yes. but it might leave a toxic residue is more yeah. of what I would be concerned about as a consumer of compost or someone that is eating food grown with that compost. I, I would don't want to ingest willingly any polypropylene polyethylene into my body. Exactly. And by your definition, by, by the definition, as you were saying, it would not be certified compostable. Correct. But it, I mean, it could break down. Sure. Yeah. But we can all break down. We can all break down. <laughs> I want my body to, and I'm done. That's why I said we're natural, right? We all break down eventually. Um, what about lookalikes? Is everything that looks like brown paper compostable, or is everything that is a green package made of 100% plants? Mm-hmm. No, not always. And that's another form of greenwashing is if people are have material that's derived from petroleum and then they're just coloring the bag, for example. But again, not making the claim, not having any evidence to support it. That's definitely illegal. Um, I want to mention there are labeling guidelines set forth by BPI. So BPI um, wants to establish um, consistent, so labeling that's consistent, um, category specific, and then also that they want to make it easy for consumers and composters to recognize um, compostable products and packaging. So they're doing things like adding the green stripe, if you've seen, that's a BPI thing. Um, Or in Washington state, they're trying to encourage people to only have utensils that are brown. So again, they're easily identifiable for consumers and composters alike. Um, Just a quick inspection. It's really hard though, because Composters, as you know, have thousands of tons coming through their facilities every week. And it's incredibly challenging to I say, oh, this mm-hmm. is possible. This is not when it almost looks exactly the same. It is just so, so hard. Um, but that's why, I mean, molded fiber, hopefully that can be, or fiber in general can just be recognized and a known compostable especially when we get the PFAS out and we can talk a little about the federal ban on PFAS too, because I feel like that's, yeah, let's do it. What's the federal ban on PFAS? Well, it's actually just been proposed um, in the Senate and it passed recently. There has been a special committee within the Senate that passed a ban on added PFAS. So intentionally added fluorine into food service wear. So if this passes, which hopefully it will actually go through the full Senate and become a law. Um, they will ban any over hundred parts per million, any food service where sold or distributed in the United States It'd be groundbreaking. And anyone that makes compostable products would have to, would have to abide by this law, which would be great. So California set the standard in starting in, um, in 2024, but we will have, um, there's an assembly bill that passed in California, AB 1201, that has um, also done the same thing where they've uh, eliminated any distribution or sale of food service where that has intentionally added fluorine. That's awesome. That's great. And it's going to make the manufacturers of these products step up and find 
the right solutions. Um, some companies also market their compostable packaging as beneficial to landfill. This one always gets me. Is 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 that true? Are compostables beneficial to landfill? Is anything beneficial to landfill? <laughs> <laughs> Let me just ask that. Uh, no, because most landfill conditions are anaerobic, so they lack oxygen. So material in landfills becomes mummified, and any material. So, so are compostables beneficial? No. Is uh, sure they can capture gas and, and and convert it to carbon dioxide and they can actually or, or they can burn it or they can fuel homes and you know convert it to energy but it's not desirable and there's still lots of material that will exist that we can get from for those source for that source yeah i mean nothing really breaks down greatly in a landfill except no. the, you know looking at the organics but it takes years and years and years for this to happen. And so, you know, um, regulations say that you're not allowed to put the, the terminology terminology beneficial to landfill, but I see it all the time. So as we said before, there exists these verified compostable certification agencies. However, there are some product manufacturers that market their own seal of approval. And they say that the product meets the standards of ASTM or it's uh, Joe's compost certification. And it really is not these agencies that are they're double and triple checking th- th- these, these claims, these true claims about compostability. Is this a form of greenwashing? I mean, it, it, it could be potentially. Really, ideally, we, one should have, a manufacturer should have a third-party verification. That's, that's the cleanest and most simple and, you know, easily trackable way to verify um, the claims that people are making. If someone does meet ASTM standards and has their product go through the process, they don't have to get verified to to make that claim on compostability. They can say that legally if they, as long as they have, if they get called out in a court of law and they can prove it, then sure, they can make that claim technically. However, there are some strong advantages to having it verified by a third-party agency because it gives you some more credibility. It gives that mark, that identifying label that you have to use, or if, or it also um, the standards for, for the PFAS, for fluorine, it also just gives people the assurance that the material doesn't have any PFAS. I think that's really important. And even that the concept of when they say meets the standards of ASTM does not mean that they actually got their ASTM. They're just saying they meet the standards of ASTM. And I'm hoping that has worked its way out of the industry by now, but that's, that's another thing that manufacturers have done in the past. Erin, what is the Federal Recycling and Composting Accountability Act? And then also, what what's happening at our national parks right now in regards to single-use disposables? The Senate Committee for the Environment passed the Recycling and Compost Accountability Act recently. And it would it's designed to fund data collection on standardizing recycling and composting through waste characterizations and infrastructure needs. So it's a huge first step in bridging the gap with where we're at with standardization on collection, processing, 
acceptability. It's really such an exciting thing that might actually pass and a lot of funds would go into making this happen. The next big thing that's happened recently is so the national parks and government properties banned single-use plastics. So they would no longer be selling, purchasing, using single-use plastics um, next year. So that's huge because they will either switch to reusables or certified compostables uh, or I guess items that are tenu- uh, potentially truly recyclable. So it'll it'll give some accountability within our government agencies, which, which are leaders and really open the door. California also passed and is it's this is in place SB 1335. They only allow truly recyclable or compostable foodware for purchase and use on any state building in California. So they have an approved materials list um, and you have to go through a whole process to get your products on a website that's approved for purchasing. This is also great. And, and just to reiterate on the recyclability side of this is going and compostability side at the federal level, it's going to be able to set up this, the situations to where all of us are going to eventually be able to, hopefully it's going to be able to compost our food scraps. Mm-hmm be able to be a pick it up curbside and do what mother nature does best, create these circular systems and put it back into use. Second to last question here, according to the EPA, wasted food makes up about 24% of what's going into the landfill, depending on where you are in the country. Almost 40% of what goes into the landfill, including wasted food may actually be compostable. Why is composting incredibly important for the environment and human health? I love compost and compost is nature's <laughs> fertilizer. It's biomimicry at its finest. It is a, and nature has it all figured out for us. I mean, composting is, is one of the single most important things that we can do to combat climate change. It's easy. You can do it. You can participate just when you're prepping your meal. Super simple. Just separate out the vegetable peelings, your eggshells, your coffee grounds, just separate it out. It's it's actually, you're already generating that material. You're just putting it in a different container. It's super simple. It's super easy. And the biggest win-win is that it mitigates the methane coming from landfill. It's, you know, being converted into this beautiful soil amendment that can be used as an alternative to synthetic fertilizer. You are uh, eliminating the need and reliance on pesticides and herbicides and all the nasty chemicals that people use to grow. It just automatically does it. It's also a huge water saving. So in areas that have heavy drought, it can actually help with uh, moisture retention. So people are using on average like 50% less water when they use compost. It is just a, and, and, and the biggest thing and something I've been working on for the last few years is around regenerative agriculture, in particular with sequestering carbon from the atmosphere just by using compost. So the addition of compost can actually help with it, simplify it, but it enhances photosynthesis and can actually lock carbon dioxide down into the ground for years, they're saying. So just by that simple act of applying compost, we are actually helping to reverse climate change. It is a beautiful thing. So just composts your life away. Love it. 
I love it. And before we, we wrap on our, our radio version here, and I just want to tell, tell all of our listeners that there is a longer version. Please check out our Patreon. We're going to ask a few more questions. Where can our listeners find out more information? How can they stay alert of any news that's happening in the composting world? And where do they find you? Sure. Um, so worldcentric.com has a lot of information. Uh, I am a huge advocate and active member within U.S. Composting Council. Um, I am also a member and get regular updates from the Sustainable Packaging Coalition, Green Blue. And for more information about if compostables are accepted um, in your area, how to deal with a particularly challenging items, I'd recommend go to how to how to the number two compost.info and then finally earth911.org. Wealth of information. All your questions can get answered about what to do. And again, where do they find you? Oh, me? World centric. Well, world centric. <laughs> yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn or World Centric. And the the it's just at World Centric. At World Centric. Yeah. So World Centric has Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, just find us on any social channel. Awesome. Well, thank you. And our listeners, we're going to continue this conversation. So if you want to continue, please go to ecojusticeradio.org. And for now, thank you, Aaron, for being on the show. It has been amazing. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you to our guest, Aaron Levine, Resource Recovery Manager at World Centric, and thank you to our listeners for joining us. This has been The Truth About Compostable Packaging. For an extended version of this interview, become a member of our Patreon. Please connect with us on social media at EcoJustice Radio, SoCal 350, and Adventures in Waste. If you like what you heard and you want others to be informed, you know what to do. Subscribe to our podcast, share the episodes, get that information out there, and help us continue our efforts by joining our Patreon or making a donation to the show. A project of SoCal 350, the show can be found on kpfk.org, kpft.org, all major podcast apps, and at ecojusticeradio.org. Created by Mark and J.P. Morris, executive producer Jack Eye, producer and co-host Jessica Aldridge, co-host Carrie Kim, and engineer and original music by Blake Quake Beats. And until next time, remember, the power is yours.